Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. In today's episode, we'll be joined by Dr. Sammy Ramsey, who is a USDA ARS postdoc in Maryland. His specialty today is the tropolalapse mite, and he's going to be talking about the research that he's done on this mite in Asia. Following that, we're going to do our five-minute segment on characteristics of healthy honeybee colonies. What makes a honeybee colony healthy and how you can identify that? And we'll finish today's episode with our question and answer segment. Hello, and welcome to another segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. We have got a fascinating topic to talk about today, and we are fortunate to be joined by a fascinating scientist who's going to be the one talking about that fascinating topic, (laughs) and that scientist is none none other than Dr. Sammy Ramsey, the research fellow for the Bee Research Lab, the USDA ARS Lab, stationed in Beltsville, Maryland. Sammy, thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, I'm, I think this is going to be a really fun one. <laughs> yeah, man, I was so excited when we saw that we were able to to bring you on the Two Bees in a Podcast. I've been watching your career, <laughs> as have a lot of others, and I know a lot of people get excited when you're behind a mic. And Sammy, on top of all of that, we're not here just talking about you and what you've been up to. We're talking about tropolalap. So this is yes. something a lot of beekeepers want to know. So, man, thank you for joining us. <laughs> Oh, it's funny to hear you say you've been watching my career. You've been a part of it, sir. My my first big <laughs> publication, you're one of the co-authors. Well, it's always fun to, to collaborate with, with superstars like you, Sammy, so it's fun <laughs> to do that. <laughs> but, oh, stop. I know, I know, I know. I, know. I was about right. to say, are we going to do this for 20 minutes? <laughs> I don't know, Amy. Well, you can jump in, Amy. You're such a good extension specialist as well. It's great to hear your voice. <laughs> No, and in all seriousness, Sammy, one of the things we like to do when we bring on a guest for the first time is before we get down to the nitty gritty of, you Mm -hmm. know, in your case, tropolalaps and all of the stuff that you've been doing with it. I think it's always cool for our listeners to hear a little bit about the person we're interviewing. In your case, you kind of came into bees a roundabout way. So could you tell us, you know, about yourself, how you got into bees and bee research? And and after you introduce yourself to the audience, we'll we'll start talking with you all about tropolalaps. Okay, sounds like a plan. Um, it, it's it, you're right. It is sort of a roundabout way that I ended up uh, as a, a researcher on honeybees. A lot of people think that since my dad is a beekeeper, that's how I got into things. But my dad was actually inspired to become a beekeeper based on the research that I was conducting, having come to a bunch of my presentations. Uh, so that was a fairly recent occurrence. But about five years ago, uh, six years ago, I was actually a researcher on parasites of stink bugs. Um, Prior to that, I was researching parasites of ladybugs. The connection that I have with uh, honeybees actually started through Varroa destructor because I spend a lot of my time studying symbioses. That's kind of my specialty within entomology. And that encompasses not just 
um, the, the mutualisms. A lot of people, when they hear the word symbiosis, they think, oh, those are the relationships where two different species work together for a common goal. But symbiosis also includes parasitism. And so I study close relationships between organisms, even the ones where one of the organisms is hurt by the presence of the other one. And I was really fascinated by Varroa destructor, all the weird elements of its biology. And that kind of pulled me into a deeper study of honeybees in general, and that's opened an entire new world to me. Uh, but it, it's strange for people to think that I actually got into it because of my fascination with Varroa destructor. It's funny you mentioned the symbiosis thing. When I was a PhD student in South Africa and I was working with small hive beetles, that's that relationship with honeybees is what interested me the most. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously from a beekeeper perspective, we wanted to kill that sucker, but <laughs> but it was really hard for me to overlook the relationship that it had with bees, a very protracted relationship. And, and I learned a lot about symbiosis, like what you said at the time, everybody thinks mutualism or commensalism, mm -hmm. but it includes parasitism. And I exactly. read a ton of works from E.O. Wilson, Berthold Doppler yes. and others about, yes. you know, and, and others, the insect bestiary, all kinds of things. It was really interesting to me to see how social insects are great hosts of lots of different things. And nice. what was interesting to me, perhaps the most, Sammy, is that of all the social insects out there, it, it is said that bees, you know, at least especially honeybees have compared comparatively few insect symbiote mm -hmm. um, compared to things like wasps and ants and termites that host exactly. maybe thousands of species. And so you're here today to talk to us specifically about tropolalaps, but it's really interesting to hear you, you look at it all from this uh, symbiosis perspective. I, I, I like that. It's interesting to me as well. So it's neat that you came at it from that angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's actually really funny that uh, honeybees are the ones that are pretty much, they, they have uh, very few by comparison to ants. Uh, all the rest of the groups have a, a clear name for what the, the associates are that live with them in their colonies. Ants, um, they, they have these myrmecophiles and they're just other creatures that are associated with their colonies, um, but very few, there are so few creatures that there hasn't been a, a really precise term for the ones that live with honeybees. Uh, it's been pitched that we call them melitophiles. And so that's what I've been calling them, uh, but there just aren't that many. <laughs> hey, hey, Sammy, along those lines, man, you keep giving me things to talk about, man. <laughs> we, um, when I first got hired at the University of Florida, we published a newsletter. Now it's a blog and we call it the Melitto Files, B News for B. I love it. I love it. And, and it was because I discovered <laughs> Melitto files back in the day. So Melitto file, P-H-I-L-E, as everyone now knows, means bee love, file, right? Lover of bees. And so yes. things that live in bee colonies are Melitto files. But Melitto files, F-I-L-E-S, could be our Jeez. newsletter. And so, so Sammy, when I got hired, I was like, you know, I'm going to educate in everything, even in the name of a newsletter. And I had so many yes, beekeepers ask me what that meant. I'm like, hey, time for you to learn something. That's what so I'm talking go. about. And also, I love puns. I absolutely love puns. Exactly. exactly. Uh, I love the really corny puns and I love the really good, like deep puns. You need a little bit sure. of both in your life. There you <laughs> go. That is a really <laughs> solid pun, sir. All right. So, Sammy, I know that before COVID hit, you were traveling the world speaking yes. to groups, large groups about triple laps, mm -hmm. right? I think seven years ago, I wouldn't have even known how to say triple laps. It's so much <laughs> fun to say. Um, so, you know, that's been your specialty. That's been what you've been studying. And that's what we brought you on here today to talk about. And so what is the triple laps? What is triple laps? 
That is a wonderful question. Uh, it is an organism that a lot of people just have a really difficult time pronouncing. We did not give it the best name in the world if we wanted people to be able to talk about it. So a lot of times I just call it the tropy mite, uh, and that seems to be catching on. So the tropy mite, it is one of just four species of mites in the genus Tropolelaps. Um, so like Varroa, there's multiple species of them and they tend to be found on different hosts. There are a couple, however, that are able to go after Apis mellifera. They're similar to Varroa in that they are, um, they, that they parasitize the stage of development, um, the, the, the brood stage of development, um, where the bees are still immature and they can do a lot of damage to them in that process. But unlike Varroa, they don't spend pretty much any time uh, on the adult bee population. By comparison to Varroa, they spend less than a day uh, on the bee population and it doesn't seem like they're actually feeding on the adult bees. So that generates a pretty um, substantial difference in how the population grows um, because they're able to jump right back into the brood and continue their reproductive cycle. Whereas Varroa can spend somewhere between uh, seven days and two weeks on the adult bees before it starts reproducing again, you kind of um, end up parasite of honeybees that can grow really, really, really fast and overwhelm colonies really quickly. I can imagine management is probably much more difficult um, when they don't really survive on the adult bees. Yes, management is much, that's a great point. Management is much more difficult because we typically target management of Varroa destructor to the period of time where they're on the adult bees. It's sure. a very vulnerable period in their life cycle because they're hanging out on these bees that allows them to be exposed to chemical treatments, that allows them to be exposed to non-chemical treatments. Um, it's it's kind of the only time that we really target uh, with Varroa with most of the chemicals that we use because otherwise you're trying to get a chemical under the cell capping. And this is a, a hydrophobic cell capping. It's made out of wax. It's difficult to get stuff in there, uh, and especially stuff that won't damage the, the vulnerable stage that is the brood. So with tropolelaps, if you're going to treat this organism, you have to find some chemical or non-chemical treatment means that is going to get through the wax uh, and attack the, the period that uh, is actually available to you uh, under the, the cell capping. So you had mentioned, Sammy, that this particular uh, individual can bother Apis mellifera. You mentioned, mm -hmm. I believe, if, if, if I'm not mistaken, you said it was in Southeast Asia. Can you tell us a little bit about where, where this thing is distributed and what its natural host is? Because, you know, Apis mellifera is not native to Asia, so or at least Southeast Asia. So where, where what's its natural host? Yes, uh, and, and, and I should also um, probably give a little bit of, of background on this organism, just in case there are people here that don't understand. Uh, like I mentioned the Varroa life cycle, but I'm not sure everybody here actually knows how these organisms work. So you yeah, please be, do tell us. Yeah. So you've got um, your honeybees. There are uh, 10 species of honeybees in uh, 10 or 11 species of honeybees in Southeast Asia, depending on um, how you you uh, look at the the the, the data there, um, and these species of bees they rear their their offspring inside of the colony uh, in these these wax cells, uh, and so the parasite right before the cell is capped, the parasite will go inside and start to um, to feed on the developing bee. When the cell is actually capped, the adults will go over and they'll place a wax uh, capping over the cell. And that's supposed to be protective. That's supposed to keep things like parasites and such from actually getting inside and let other bees know that this, um, this developing honeybee is about to turn into an adult. 
um, the, the parasites have figured out how to get in there. And so there are some really small organisms called mites that have figured out how to exploit these honeybees. Now, um, in Southeast Asia, you can find every species of honeybee that exists. It's quite remarkable. But over in the West, we have just one. We have Apis mellifera. But you would expect that in an area that has every species of honeybee, you also have pretty much every species of honeybee parasite. They're all just hanging out on different species of honeybees and ever so often, they'll decide to try a new species. Now, most species in Asia, because they've been exposed to parasites for so long, they have built up a ridiculous number of resistances that allow them to manage the populations of these parasites. But unfortunately, Apis mellifera, having moved out of Asia into Europe, uh, and then eventually being moved around the world, it's been away from Asia for so long and away from the other species of honeybees and their parasites for so long that whatever resistance genes that it may have had, it's lost the majority of them to a lot of these parasites. And so when they've been moved back into Asia um, by people, the parasites through over evolutionary time have just been able to jump into um, to, to jump onto this new host and they found, oh, it's a lot easier to develop on Apis mellifera than the rest of the bees. And so Apis mellifera is becoming the primary host uh, of a lot of, uh, of some of these parasites where it was originally uh, only an alternative host. And that's become really problematic. Now, originally, um, Tropolelaps was present in Southeast Asia. So think um, the, the Malay archipelago, so think uh, Malaysia, think uh, Thailand, uh, Burma, um, Vietnam, that region of the world. And then it started spreading outside of this area. So it originally wasn't present in China. Now it's present in China, um, India. Uh, it's moving into, uh, it's moved into the Middle East and we can find them uh, actually in Iraq now. And so it's, um, a concern because the sort of spread that we're seeing in tropolelaps mirrors the exact same spread that we saw in Varroa some time ago. Uh, and Varroa ended up in the US in 1987. Um, the speed of tropolelapses is uh, movement through these different countries is substantially more accelerated than that of Varroa. And so I think it's a good idea for us to start researching this organism. Interesting. So it is not here in the United States. It is and not. it is it in Europe? So it's not in Europe. Not yet. Not in Australia. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. All right. So we'll we'll try to keep it that way, I think. Yes. Yes. And our biosecurity standards are such that uh, if we work hard enough and really keep an eye on things, it's possible that we can actually keep these out of, of different areas. Australia is a wonderful example of that. They have maintained um, biosecurity standards that have kept them varroa free for decades and decades and decades. And it's amazing. Uh, we want to make sure that we can keep our standards um, such that we can keep these organisms out. But it can be very difficult to do when you're actually connected to other land masses. Uh, and so, yeah, with uh, we, we don't manage how other countries maintain their standards as well. Got so it. Sammy, if, if I understand the biology correctly though, I mean, they would need that brood link. So um, unless brood were brought to an area that was infested, it seems like like that's where the, the national standards would be targeting, right? Just keeping brood, live brood from showing up. Is that correct? <sighs> I, I, I said, I thought that this was going to be fun and I was right. You guys <laughs> ask great questions. Um, so Jamie, that's a great question. And there was a 
a paper written about this some time ago where the, the headline, the title of the paper was uh, Tropile Lapse is a concern, but not to the West, <laughs> or a, a concern, but only in tropical areas. And that left a lot of people with the impression, we're fine. Uh, if the organisms don't have brood all year round, they're not going to be able to establish, even if they just happen to, to show up as a result of uh, an incursion in one area or another. That actually seems to not be correct. And we don't understand why yet, but we do have data uh, that shows very clearly that somehow triple laps are able to survive in the absence of brood and are able to spread uh, in the absence of brood and we don't quite get it. So a good example would be uh, Korea. Korea is, uh, they have frigid Siberian winters where it is clearly the case that the Apis mellifera there are not rearing brood all year round. But for some reason, Tropolelaps has been able to establish in Korea in the coldest reaches of China. Uh, and we don't know quite how they're doing it, how they're persisting from year to year, but they're able to, uh, to, to establish in that country. What we do know is that their reproductive rate and their population growth is substantially slower than it is in the tropics, but somehow they've been able to make it work. And that is the most concerning thing about this organism, because that means in um, the, the same elevations, the same latitudes, we could have those issues here in the US uh, in our temperate regions as well. I thought you were supposed to be on here to give us good news today. Oh. <laughs> I guess I was wrong. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but I, I think it's very important. I think the best news that, that we can really get in this situation is that we are prepared. And the only way that we're really going to be prepared is if we face the scariest parts of this head on. Because I've been telling people, the worst thing that you can do is to wait to develop your emergency response plan when somebody is already yelling at you, fire! And I don't want us to do that. I want us to have a great emergency response plan in place just in case this organism does arrive. That's fair. I, I remember. So I actually heard you speak a couple of years ago at an association meeting um, here in Florida. And I just remember someone joking around with you and saying, all right, so you're the person that's going and working with triple A And if we find triple A <laughs> in Florida, there must be some sort of correlation. But all joking aside, um, I know that you have been doing a lot of research with triple A And so can you tell us what research is currently being conducted on it? Yes, yes, I can. And there are some exciting projects uh, currently being conducted, but I will also say there are not a lot of projects being conducted on this organism. There are a few people um, actually actively and consistently researching it. Um, I, and I should also say, that was a, a good question that someone asked me in Florida, even though it was posed as a joke. Um, I wanted people to know that I am taking very seriously the possibility that going over to Asia and then coming back um, could be a means of movement for this organism. I don't want to be the transport vector. So um, it is very important to me to leave things there that are involved with uh, any of those projects. And so uh, individuals who have seen my, the videos of me doing my research, you'll see that I have a Thai set of research equipment that stays in Thailand and an American set of research equipment that stays in America. And never the two shall meet because um, in, in the words of um, an, an old African-American proverb, ain't nobody got time for that. So. That is uh, that situation there. Um, but uh, it, to the other question that you asked, what research is being conducted? Well, um, there are researchers in Thailand who have been conducting research on how the triple lapse might feeds on its host, um, specifically because that's the primary way that they damage the organism. 
Um, and so um, research out of Dr. Um, Panawan Chantawanakun's lab uh, has shown that these mites feed on uh, honeybees and they actually bite multiple holes in the honeybee uh, over the course of the process of feeding, which is different from Varroa, which will feed through a single hole. Um, Tropolelaps can cause a lot of damage all over the body of the honeybee by constantly biting a different hole every time it feeds. Um, there's been a, a substantial amount of, of, of research conducted to this point on viruses and the transmission of these viruses by tropolelaps. Um, it, there hasn't been quite enough of it yet, but I'm glad to see that research is going in that direction. And we know that tropolelaps can spread uh, many of the same viruses that Varroa can. And every time we look at new viruses, we find that there are more. Um, I, I think we need to conduct even more research to see if there are viruses specific to tropolelaps instead of just the ones that Varroa transmits like deformed wing virus and black queen cell virus. The research that I've been conducting there has been focused on, uh, so my research project, which has generally been called the, the Fight the Mite Initiative, is actually separated into two pieces. So there's the Fight the Mite element and the Cite the Mite element. The Fight the Mite element of the project is focused on understanding how we can control and properly manage the tropolelapse mite. If it were to arrive in the US, what would be the best ways to control this organism? What chemical or non-chemical methods do we have at our disposal? What could the beekeepers do? Uh, and what could biosecurity individuals do to potentially eradicate it? And then in addition to that, um, I've really wanted to know the life cycle of this organism better. All the work that we conduct on tropolelapse, unfortunately, is through a stop motion system. If we want to see the development of this parasite, we have to constantly open brood cells and see what the mite was doing at the time the cell was opened. While that can provide you with some information, it's a stop motion system. It's like seeing someone walk past a window. You don't know what was happening before they reached your field of sight. So before they got to the window or after, you've just got that one period when they're in your field of sight in the window. The tropolelapse mites are like that. When you open the cell, they stop moving. They stop doing all the things that they were doing before because they feel that influx of air and they know that they've been found out. If you really wanna know what's going on inside of that cell consistently, you have to find a way to get a camera into a tiny little wax brood cell where it's dark and there's nothing going on. I created a system um, called Mite Insight where you can actually look into these cells. I've got a camera recording over a microscope that can record the entire life cycle of this mite. And so instead of us just kind of gluing together a bunch of pieces of what we think is happening here, we can see the entire thing. Um, and I'm really excited about that work. And the, Sammy, that sounds pretty neat. I'm looking forward to seeing some of those videos. I, so beekeepers are going to be listening to this. And, and mm -hmm. one of the cool things about this podcast is we found that beekeepers from all around the world listen to it, dozens and dozens and dozens of countries. So with that background, you know, you're doing a lot of cool work. This, this mite has an amazing biology. It's, it's linked in with a few different species of honeybees in Asia. That's super cool. Mm -hmm. So from a beekeeper perspective, what should they be looking for with regard mm. to this mite? And, and number one, number two, if it were to ever spread outside of where it currently is and, you know, worst case scenario, it goes around the world like <laughs> like is conceivably possible. How how is it managed? How is it managed currently in Asia? Uh, how you know what's on the horizon for us to be able to do against this thing? Should it show up here or other places? Once again, great questions. Um, that's a big question. So it's gonna, I'm going to try to answer it in chunks. Um, and one element of it is how are beekeepers actually managing these organisms in Asia? Um, I, I know that one of the questions that was asked to me earlier on is what, what were the original honeybee hosts 
uh, of this organism. And I'm not sure that I, I specifically answer that. It is the giant honeybee um, in, in Asia that has been the primary host of this organism. And the reason why that's important to management is that the giant honeybees actually manage this organism by constantly migrating. Uh, they migrate uh, multiple times a year, or at least twice a year, uh, and that consistent theme of migration allows them to fly away from where they would normally be rearing brood and break the brood cycle. The mites also aren't able to uh, spend a lot of time on the adult bee population in flight. Um, flying bees can easily um, get rid of their mites because the mites just don't hold on particularly well to uh, a mobile population of adult bees. And so uh, that's a good way for them to be managed. The beekeepers in Asia seem to have uh, taken on a, a similar way of, of managing this process by breaking the brood cycle. If they're able to take the brood out of the colony or uh, cage the queen and, and keep them um, from, from having a consistently available capped brood to them, the mites typically die within a good 48 hours. Um, they don't seem to be able to survive much longer than two days without brood to feed on. However, unlike Varroa, um, we know that trope mites will actually feed on the uncapped brood as well. They will go into the brood cells of early stage brood um, and, and actually start feeding on those, those young larvae, which can cause a lot of problems within the colony as well. And so individuals have to remove pretty much all the brood from the colony. Unfortunately, that as a consistent theme of management can really disrupt things like honey production and the general buildup of the colony. If you don't need a lot of honey, then that's a fairly effective way of managing these organisms and you can eradicate them from a colony in that way. But if you want to actually develop brood, um, another way that the beekeepers will actually manage them is to take liquid formic acid to soak pieces of wood in that liquid formic acid and then shove that into the colony and close it. And over time, that formic acid will aerosolize into the colony and it will kill the population of mites that are actually under the cell capping. It can penetrate the cells. That's one of the reasons why we use formic um, in, in North America and other areas um, because if you 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 can um, if it's concentrated enough it can penetrate the capping and kill the varroa mites that are under the cell capping as, as well. Um, so that's one way to do it is not the most precise method to actually soak really concentrated formic acid that way you want a, a more controlled release and so uh, I'm working on finding better ways to manage that um, that that release of formic acid. Um, but anything that will um, manage the population under the cell capping is something that we should be looking into and evaluating. So I've also been looking into the potential for thermal remediation. Um, heat will penetrate all of those different areas of the colony. And so the, the, the actual internal contents of the cell, those can be managed uh, potentially through the usage of um, a level of heat that is beyond what the mites can take, but below what the honeybees are able to manage and, and remain healthy. And so we're looking into better understanding um, the effectiveness of that as well. Let me ask a question, Sammy. So in, in the United States and maybe in Europe and other places around the world, there's a lot of chemicals, potentially at least, that go into colonies to control varroa, right? There's varroa treatment regimens, et cetera. Will these things not also kill mites? And I guess, you know, answering my own question, is it if they don't, is it because there is such a short period of time that these triple elapse might spend outside of brood cells? So, so long story short, is what we currently do against Varroa going to give us the double, the double control uh, against triple elapse as well? So it seems unlikely. 
that what we use against Varroa is going to uh, allow us to effectively control trophy mites. And a big reason for that is exactly what you were saying a moment ago. The small amount of time that they spend on the adult bee population reduces their vulnerability to chemical formulations like um, Amitraz that we, we currently have available to us. That's one of the most consistent mite treatments that is used uh, in North America. But unfortunately, it targets the population that is on the adult bees. Uh, it doesn't penetrate the cell capping. Um, we can actually learn a lot from the areas of the world where trophy mites have become invasive species. So China, Korea, uh, they're in uh, Oceania now, so uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, Iran, in these areas, a lot of people have tried to simply repurpose Varroa treatments and they have failed quite consistently. Um, we know that tropy mites have a lot of resistance genes um, available to them for resistance to chemicals. And so that's one reason they develop resistance really quickly, much more quickly than Varroa. Um, but in addition to that, uh, anything that's just going to go after the population outside of brood cells is just not going to have enough time to really heavily impact the population. And so things like formic are, are um, things that, that penetrate the cell capping uh, are really going to, to most likely be um, the most important thing we can look to for some time. Well, Sammy, I appreciate you coming on Two Bees in a Podcast and sharing all of your insight with us. I think one of the benefits of, of having you is that you've got firsthand experience with this particular mite where it's native, right, in Southeast yeah. Asia. So it's been great to have you on talking about this mite. Uh, well, thanks so much for having me, guys. I love increasing awareness uh, about these, these organisms. I think we need to know as much about them as we can before they reach the West. <laughs> And given your background and research with Varroa, as well as what you're doing now at even Asian giant hornets and other hornets from Asia, we'll have you on again if you'll if you'll join us so that we can talk looking about those topics to as well. I'm looking forward to it. We really need to keep an eye on the Asian giant hornet situation as well. So uh, definitely. Everyone, that was Dr. Sammy Ramsey, a research fellow for the Bee Research Lab, the USDA ARS station in Beltsville, Maryland. Thank you for joining us for this segment on Two Bees in a Podcast. or comments don't forget to like and follow us on facebook instagram and twitter at uf honeybee lab all right it's that five minute management five minute management and today we are talking about characteristics of healthy honeybee colonies jamie i'm going to go ahead and start Perfect. So um, a lot of people want to ask me what sick colonies are, how to recognize this stress and that stress. And in reality, it's better to teach people how colonies should look first before teaching them things that are abnormal. Mm -hmm. All right. So when you're approaching a hive, there are some external cues. And when you get into that hive, there are some internal things that you should be looking for. And I'll go over those quickly. Externally, you want to make sure bees are exiting and uh, entering the hive if it's normal for that time of year. Obviously, if the temperature is below 60 degrees, you wouldn't expect to see it. But if it's above 60 degrees, you should have regular bee activity. You should have fewer no dead bees on the hive entrance. The reason I say few is because it's normal for bees to carry off their dead. Once they start piling up on the bottom board or on the ground outside the hive, 
this can suggest that there's a problem. There should be no adult bees crawling around on the ground outside of the hive. This is often an indication of a virus or some other problem. There should be no robbing. There shouldn't be adult honeybees trying to find their way into the hive anywhere beyond the nest entrance. You can also do a quick assessment of the hive weight. You can grab the handle on the bottommost box of the hive and kind of rock it forward a little bit. And if it's got a good weight, then that means they have enough stores. And then you're going to just do a general hive inspection. Do you see ants trailing in and out of the hive? Is the stand rickety? Is there evidence that something's scratching on the entrance of the hive? You know, all of these things are good external things to look for when you're going into a hive. Now, once you're in that hive, the very first thing you do is you remove the lid. You should see frames in the uppermost box or super. You should see bees blanketing about 80% or more of those frames. So if you've got a 10 frame box, if you're looking at it from above, it might be okay to have the outermost frames without bees on top of the, those frames, but you really want to see 80% or more of those frames kind of covered from above. And when you pull out a comb, you want that the face of the comb uh, about 80% or more of it covered with bees. The more bees that can cover these frames and these combs, the more they can keep them protected from diseases and pests. Whatever your uppermost food box is should be about 50% full of stored honey. So what do I mean by uppermost food box? Well, it all depends on your standard hive configuration. If you run a single as your brew chamber and a medium as your food super, then your medium should be 50% full of food or have more honey than that. If you have two double deeps as your standard hive configuration, then the uppermost deep should have at least 50 or be at least 50% full of honey. And that doesn't count all those supers that are above that for your purposes, but you just need to make sure that the box closest to the brew chamber has about 50% uh, is about 50% or more stored honey. The frames in the brood chamber should also contain ripe honey or nectar and pollen in the corners and a band around the top. You should see evidence of a queen. Maybe you see the queen herself or eggs or young larvae, but there's clear evidence that she's there. All life stages of bees should be present. You should look and see if there's eggs, young larvae, older larvae, pupae, adult bees, et cetera, and they should look normal. So what does that mean? You should have one egg per cell. When you see larvae, they should be lying in the back of their cells in the shape of a letter C and glistening and white. When you see cap brood, it should have domed cappings, no sunken cappings, it should have no perforations, it should be a good solid brood pattern that occupies a good percentage of the frame. You shouldn't see queen cells. You know, queen cells are usually made during swarm season or response to a queen emergency. So the absence of those things tells you that, that the colony is kind of in a normal pattern or period at the, at the moment. You should see no unchecked diseases or pests. Now, with one quick caveat, it's okay to see a little bit of evidence of small hive beetle damage or varroa damage, but it shouldn't be unchecked. It should be very manageable. It's impossible for colonies not to have varroa, but you should have very low levels. So seeing incredibly low levels is not bad, but you want to make sure that diseases and pests are in check. And finally, all the adult bees should have normal wings and all their hair. And I know that sounds weird, but if their wings are shriveled, that's an indicator that there's a high virus level because of varroa. And if they're losing substantial amounts of hair, then you might have a virus as well. So pending that you see all of these things, you've got some reasonable assurances that your colony is doing well and that everything's okay at the moment. I am amazed. 
you did th- that in <laughs> four minutes and 58 seconds. I just, I felt it. I felt <laughs> that clock, you know, just for the listeners sake, you and I aren't even in the same room. That was completely unscripted. We just, I just whooped that out right on time. So <laughs> yeah, I'm very impressed. Well, that was awesome. Um, okay. So there are so many different characteristics, right. That you look uh, for in a healthy honeybee colony. Um, we'll definitely be sure to link a lot of these uh, characteristics on our website so that people can take a look at this. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. All right, so it's that question and answer time. And the first question is about sugar. The different types of sugar to feed bees. Perfect. We're going to start with a sweet question. What do you think about that, Amy? See what I did there? Uh, yes, I have comments. Unfortunately, that I'm not going right. To say them. All right. Uh, so, well, so tell us about the different types of feed. Yeah, what types so- of sugar do we use? There's three different really types of sugar sources that you can provide to bees. One of those is honey, right? You you could actually feed honey back to bees. Mm -hmm. You can do this in frames that you've stored. You can move frames of honey between colonies from maybe colonies that have a lot to colonies that don't. If a colony dies and leaves a super full of honey, you can throw it in the freezer and use that honey later. But, But I'm assuming this listener is asking specifically more so about like, what are some non honey related sugars I can provide to bees? And really the two that we typically recommend our, our corn syrup, which is what you see a lot of commercial beekeepers use, but a lot of beekeepers have less access to this. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. And just straight up granulated sugar, like what you would buy at the grocery store, be it beet derived or, or cane derived. It doesn't really matter. It's just granulated sugar, 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 right? So, and there's a difference between the white and the brown sugar. That's right. right. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. So brown sugar, you do not feed to bees. So I'm talking specifically about white granulated sugar. Brown sugar can cause dysentery in bees. You don't want to feed molasses to bees and things like Mm -hmm. that. So I'm just talking about the white granulated sugar. So that is what most hobbyists and sideline beekeepers are going to use to mix into their sugar water. And the reason that's the case is because it's very accessible in small quantities. You can go to the grocery store and get it. A lot of commercial beekeepers will use high fructose corn syrup, not because it's better or worse for bees, but sometimes it's just cheaper than granulated sugar. What you'll see commercial beekeepers do is they'll look at the market. And if the market says uh, a tanker load of high fructose corn syrup is cheaper than a tanker load of sugar syrup, then they'll go with the high fructose corn syrup. I have seen one research paper on bee preference for granulated sugar derived sugar syrup versus Mm -hmm. high fructose corn syrup. And bees did have a slight preference for granulated sugar produced sugar syrup. But I think at the end of the day, it comes out in the wash. That's why a lot of commercial beekeepers make that decision based on price. But for the rest of us, you know, a lot of hobbyists and sideliners, we're going to tend to go towards the granulated sugar, the white granulated sugar. I will make just one statement because I'm guessing there's a lot of folks out there who go, what you would feed bees, high fructose corn syrup or granulated sugar. But you got to remember honeybees use honey mostly for the purpose of energy. It's not really a nutrition source. Mm-hmm. And so the energy comes in the form of sugar. So it's it really is okay to provide bees sugar syrup 
derived from granulated sugar or, or for that matter, high fructose corn syrup. You know, it's, it's an energy source for the bees and they seem to do okay on it you know, or just fine. So I don't have a problem doing it. The alternative is them starving to death and that's always the worst solution, right? So I, I don't think it's a problem, but for sure you want to stay away from things such as brown sugar, mm-hmm. molasses, mm-hmm. and, and some of these other odder things, you know, I know some syrup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maple syrup, even though I like that. Some people might even try to use uh, powdered sugar, but powdered sugar often comes with some sort of filling agent to keep it from clumping, maybe cornstarch or something like that. And it just doesn't dissolve well in water. It's just a mess to use. So if you're going to use you know, cane or beet derived sugar, you're going to really want to use granulated white sugar. Sure. My grandpa, I actually was talking to him about honeybees and he asked if my honeybees had diabetes because we feed them so much sugar. Yeah. They can actually process it. <laughs> I'll let him know that. Okay. I thought you were saying diabetes and I'm like, Amy, Amy, Amy. <laughs> uh, no. Okay. So the second question we have is still related to feeding and it's about communal feeding. And so this person was asking, you know, what do we feel about communal feeding? Does it spread disease? What are we worried about? Does it in enhance or promote robbing. Um, let's, yeah, let's talk about communal feeding. What do you think? Yeah. So the answer to all those questions are all the above the reason. So what is communal feeding It's basically when beekeepers will set out large amounts of food, usually sugar syrup, but sometimes pollen, dry pollen subs, but usually some sort of sugar syrup where they'll set it out and allow bees to collect it on their own. So the, the obvious advantage to this is it's cheap and easy to do. You know, right. The alternative Mm -hmm. is individually feeding every colony. So that takes time and time is money. All right. So it's cheap and easy to do, which is why a lot of commercial beekeepers do it. On the other hand, there are drawbacks and they're everything the questioner mentioned. Number one, it's easy to spread diseases this way, right? You get a lot of bees going to the same source. It's just easy to spread diseases. Number two, it can incite robbing. It can cause bees to Mm -hmm. want to rob at the feeding site, as well as one another, you know, it can result in a lot of dead bees. If you're not careful, things like that. Number three. And one of the things I think is important that most people focus less on is the idea that usually the stronger colonies that may not need it as much are the ones that are able to get it more simply because they're stronger. So often the colonies that need it most are the ones that are least able to get it. So There are some benefits and drawbacks, despite everything I said, people are going to still continue to to communally feed bees, and there might be circumstances where it's a good idea. But generally speaking, um, it's better to feed colonies or, or hives directly than it is to provide it communally. Sure. And is it true that if you, so I've heard from some beekeepers that if you feed with the entrance feeder, that that also promotes robbing. Is that, is that a real thing? Absolutely, Amy. You know, any any anytime you take food to a hive, you are in danger of causing robbing to that hive. And there are some things that are better than others. For example, the entrance feeder mm-hmm. makes it easy for bees from other colonies to go and rob sugar syrup. Incidentally, for that matter, so do so do feeders that sit on the top of the hive. Those same jars move to the top of the hive. Maybe there's a hole in the lid and the jar fits through that. That also attracts other bees. Um, a lot of folks like division board feeders or those hive top feeders for that purpose, because, you know, it's completely protected and, and a robber would have to go into the hive to get it. The downside of those feeders, of course, is you have to open a hive to get the food to them. The benefit of entrance feeders or lid feeders is that you can physically see the syrup 
going down. So, you know, it's time mm-hmm. to feed them. Another thing too, is you have to be real careful when you feed bees because you don't want any sugar syrup on the outside of anything on the outside of entrance feeders, on the outside of jar feeders on the top. You don't want to necessarily fill the jars at the hive because you can get sugar syrup on the hive lid or on the walls of the boxes. Anything that makes it sticky and attractive to other bees can promote robbing in that particular hive. All right. Very cool. So for our last question, it's not about feeding. Um, it's actually about the boxes. (laughs) (laughs) So the question is, it's kind of funny. I'm just going to go ahead and read exactly what the question was. I want to brand my numbers and more into my boxes, like a real commercial beekeeper. I thought that was kind of funny. So (laughs) do you, (laughs) very cute. Thank you. Uh, do you, I burn the boxes and then paint them to try to avoid the brand or do I paint them first and then brand them? Which way is the correct way to do this? <laughs> I, I prefer to brand mine first and then paint them. Anytime I have tried to brand through paint, it's harder to do. It, it melts paint onto the brander. It can blister the paint right around the heat source. You can tell I've tried uh, this before, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> I was about to so, say, yeah. yeah. So I I prefer to brand it first, then paint it. But of course, a lot of people will be in beekeeping for some time before they elect to brand in the first place. And now they've got all these painted boxes. And and, and in that case, you have to, you know, they're already painted. So your only option is to brand on top of the paint. But when you have the choice, I prefer to brand and then paint. What are some other options that people do, you know, just to, I know that um, here in Florida, everyone has kind of their own apiary number and it's supposed to be on their hive. So what else do people do to identify, you know, or, or label their boxes? So, so branding is what a lot of commercial guys and gals do, but on top of that, um, a lot of people use labels. There's a lot of waterproof labels that you can print with waterproof ink on them. And then you can affix those to the front of the hive. I've seen a lot of people, you know, those, those cattle um, tags that hang from cattle ears. I've seen Mm -hmm. people nail those to hives. I've seen people do all kinds of things, get a stencil, for example, with their hive identifier and put that stencil on the hive and spray paint the stencil. And so I've seen a lot of different, there's a lot of ways that you can, you can paint hives, but a lot of the reasons that commercial beekeepers do it the branding way is it's easy. It's, it's, it's very difficult to erase. So if someone steals sure. your hives, it's it's hard to hide a brand where it's mm-hmm. easy to paint over someone's painted numbers or take off a tag or a label that's been affixed to the hive, which is why a lot of commercial beekeepers gravitate towards that branding. Great. All right. Well, there we go. The question and answers. Uh, don't forget to send us your questions or comments on our social media pages, or feel free to send us an email, honeybee at ifis.ufl.edu. Hey everyone, thanks for listening today. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to our podcast coordinator, Lauren Goldstein, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, two bees in a podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast.